Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. This is really a very significant passage. This passage gives us the opportunity to look at something that is, that is unique. We're, it's going to show us almost a scientifically controlled experiment where you have no error on the human side. And yet you have someone who follows the will of God and it turns out badly. Now, I, I believe that in, in, in sincere believers' hearts, people who earnestly pursue God, there are sort of typical things that can wound us. And many people have tried to follow the Lord, tried to walk in Him, tried to do what He's, he's asked, believed deeply that they were following the will of God, and then it turned out badly. Which causes them to look back and say, What went wrong? Didn't I hear right? Can't I hear? And so now my confidence in my ability to hear from God is shaken. Or I say, God, you didn't care. You don't, you don't love me. You're not, you're not guiding me. You're, you're not with me. And, the, and the, the wall comes up between the Lord. I think of this sermon like surgery, not something cruel, but something healing. The, the word goes into our heart for those deep wounds. Many of us will have some of these wounds in our hearts where we've tried so earnestly to hear the word of God and to obey him, particularly with respect to choosing people. And it went wrong. The person betrayed us. The situation went, up, went, went wrong. And we think, what did I do? What went wrong? The word's going to show us and heal us today. Come, Holy Spirit, open the word of God to us. Open our hearts to your word. We love you, Lord. We ask God right now that, that, that you grace me to speak your word and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. It is important to me to give you two things, in a sense, on, on a weekend. I, it is important for me for you to understand the Bible for yourself. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to explain this passage to you. Why? So that next time you read it, you can, God can speak to you through it. Come on, much of the time we read through stuff we don't have a clue what it means and then every so often there's a, a, a verse that sort of jumps out and you cross stitch it, you know, and you know, think that's cool, but we don't have any idea what's going on. And so as we go through the books like this, I want you, when we're done, I want you to, to open the book of Acts and when you read it, you get it. You know what the thing says. Why? So God can talk to you. This is so you can understand your word. That's the point. So I'm going to take you some, some Bible study, and then I've got a good sermon for you, so don't, 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 don't leave me. All right, here we go. I'm going to start with a discussion guide, replacing Judas. Have you ever wondered why Jesus chose Judas? It was a choice he made after intense prayer. Luke tells us he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Notice, Jesus went up, prayed all night 
asking God for guidance, and then chose the 12. 11 of these worked out very well, but one ended badly. Does that mean a mistake was made? Did Jesus miss hearing God correctly on one name? Or did God guide him to select Judas so there would be someone among his disciples evil enough to betray him? In other words, did God say, here, take this one really awful guy and stick him in your group so he'll betray you later on? This is much more than an academic question. Because who among us has not earnestly prayed for guidance and chosen someone, believing we were following God's will, only to have that person betray us or fail miserably in some other way? Come on. We, we, we hire people prayerfully. We marry people. Uh, we, we go into business with people. We choose teachers, we choose people in our lives prayerfully. God, I believe you're leading me. You step out in it, and they betray you. The whole thing is, turns badly. What went wrong? And when that happens, it raises deep questions about God. If he knows the future, and he does, then why would he lead us to choose people who turn out badly? Why didn't Jesus choose someone else? Why do we at times make such terrible mistakes? Obviously, there's no simple answer that applies to every situation, but the example of Judas does teach us a lot about God's guidance, if we're willing to hear it. One of the men Jesus chose appears to have been an awful choice, and this gathering of believers we're reading about here is having to go through the process of replacing him. Are you at Acts chapter 1? I'll start at verse 15, down to 26. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, verses 18 and 19 are Luke, who's writing Acts, inserting this statement to explain to Theophilus, some high-placed, probably Roman official, for whom the book of Acts is actually being written, explaining his faith to him. He explains what happened to Judas. He says, now this man, that'd be Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Not you pleased to know that. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, I'm not going to discuss that, but it is on the other side of your thing. Later on, now don't do it now, stay with me. But if you turn over your daily Bible study, I explain what is going on there and what that, why... That is, so you can read that. Now we're back to Peter speaking. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead, actually his camp, be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. The Hebrew says, let his camp be made desolate and no one dwell in his tents, no dweller in his tents. And then he quotes from Psalm 109 and he says, let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must be a witness with us of the resurrection, of his resurrection. So they put together two men, pardon me, they put forward, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these you two have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. In Psalm 41, 9, David lamented that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus quoted this verse in the upper room while Judas was still present. Peter is explaining here that his lament was prophetic. It described Judas. He was a close friend and sat at Jesus' table and ate his bread. Taken literally, Peter's statement, he was counted among us and received his portion, his lot in this ministry, may mean that there was a financial aspect to being one of the twelve. It seems to indicate that the Lord had set a precedent of dividing among the 12 some of the revenue that came in to support their families since at his invitation they had stopped working to travel with him. If so, Judas' portion was now left unused. You do not see Psalm 41 quoted there, but you see the substance of it being paraphrased. Judas stands up, or Peter stands up and says, now one who basically ate Jesus' bread, who had a portion at his table, has betrayed him as David the prophet said he would. Jesus had quoted that very verse in the upper room. It's, it's uh, in the very room they were gathered in not long before. This is fresh in their minds. Why do I bring that up? I am, I am telling you that I think And why do I say it is because the literal meaning of the words. I'm not speculating. I'm not inventing something out of whole cloth. This is what the words literally imply. Usually people take it in a softer way. He had sort of a portion in our ministry. I think it says he had a portion. In other words, apparently, as the revenue came in, and it did, and there's statements in the Gospels of this, Jesus must have divided among the 12 certain portion of it. They gave a lot to the poor, but some of it for them to help support their families. These men had left their nets. These men had left their income. You can't, you got a wife, you got a kids at home, you got parents, you got all of who's going to support them. So I believe there was a share. What they're actually doing. And the reason this is significant is they're actually replacing one of those places. Judas spot is left open. Verse 21 and 22. Now the process of selecting a replacement begins. Peter lists three qualifications for someone to be considered as a nominee. First, the nominee must be a man. Why? Well, they're going out. Every one of these, except one, will die violently. They're all going to be traveling missionaries all over the world. So one had to be a man. Second, he must be someone who traveled with Jesus over the entire course of his three and a half year ministry. Beginning the day he arrived at the Jordan River where John was baptizing until the day he ascended into heaven. And third, he must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. He must be someone who actually saw him alive after the crucifixion. 
What is surprising is that there were numerous people present who fit that criteria. Obviously, many more traveled with Jesus than just the 12. There were others who'd been with him the whole time. Doesn't that surprise you? You've got 120 people in this room, and Peter says, now, we're going to replace Judas, and I want you all to nominate two candidates. And he said, here's, here's this criteria. You've got you to be a man. You've got you to have been with the Lord the entire time, going clear back to when they were standing at the Jordan River, and Jesus shows up. And all through the ministry, watched the whole thing, and then watched him ascend. You thought, don't you think in your mind, it was kind of Jesus and the 12 guys, you know, just sort of strolling down the dusty roads, going from town to town. That's the picture we usually have. It's not true. This, this Jesus thing was a big event. Come on, you don't heal the sick, raise the dead, and basically never miss, and not have crowds that were huge. You've got a lot of people traveling with him. So they've got this whole bunch that now they're going to decide through all of these who've been traveling with them the whole time. Verse 23. Luke doesn't tell us how the two nominees were chosen, but it appears they were selected by the larger gathering after they evaluated those among them who met Peter's qualification. Joseph Barsabbas, the word means son of the Sabbath, who also had a Roman name, Justice, just or righteous, is the first one mentioned. The other was Matthias, whom the church historian Eusebius said was one of the 70 disciples Jesus sent out two by two. Remember that? He sent out the 12 two by two, but he also sent out 70, remember, to go to every town to which he was to come. These two would go into a village. They would start a ministry. They'd start healing the sick, preaching the gospel. They'd start a whole thing, and Jesus would show up in the middle of it, carry on, and move on. He was probably doing two or three towns a day kind of thing. He covered the entire Galilee, and there were a million and a half people living in the Galilee at the time. This is not small. Verse 25, 24 and 25. After choosing two nominees, the entire gathering prayed, addressing God as the heart knower. They, they, they don't simply say, you who know the heart. They use this beautiful word. It's, it's a com, com, combination. You recognize the word cardio, heart, and gnosko, anyway, knowledge. They call him the heart knower. Say that. Isn't that beautiful? They said, you the heart knower. Lift up the one you have chosen. That's what they say. And asking him literally to lift up the one whom he had already chosen. To take the place in this ministry and apostleship. From which Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. The act of replacing one of the twelve is a unique event. And it's important to note that he's not being replaced because he died. All but one of the remaining 11 would die a martyr's death, but no one would be nominated to replace them. Jesus left no instructions for there to be a perpetual 12. Judas is being replaced because he has been disqualified and his place is empty. There aren't 12. Yet there must be 12 because the Lord said they would have a role to play in the future messianic age. Who recalls what he said? He said in the, in that, in the restoration, he says to them, you will do what? Sit on 12 thrones ruling Israel. 12, you've got to have 12. We've only got 11. Judas didn't just die. 
We're not replacing him because he died. We're replacing him because he has been removed. He has been, he has failed. Verse 26, one more. After the nominees were selected, and after the Lord was asked to reveal his choice, it, quote, they gave lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. A common Jewish way of casting lots was to inscribe a name on a small stone or piece of wood. These were placed into a jar or another container of some kind and shaken, and the lot that fell out first was the one chosen. You see what they do? Two stones, they write the names on them, they put them in a jar of some kind, and they shake the thing, and the one that falls out is the one selected. Much has been said about their method of selection. Some consider it an immature form of decision-making, which showed that the disciples were not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit and therefore unable to discern God's choice in a more mature way. Some have said they should not have nominated any replacement because Paul would be the true 12th man, I mean 12th apostle. (laughs) But the process of casting lots has deep roots in Judaism. This is how the land of Israel was divided among the tribes and families. You know that, right? They cast lots for who, which tribe got what area. They cast lots for which, in that area, which family got which. That's how they, that's, this is a, it's got deep heritage, you might say, in Israel. It is not a despised way of making a decision. It should also be noted that if indeed the person chosen was to receive Judas' financial allotment, one-twelfth, The process of casting lots after the whole gathering nominated the candidates prevented any accusation of favoritism. You see it? They didn't just appoint some friend to this place. This with all kinds of feelings would be here. They let God clearly and and the whole gathering choose. It was actually a very wise and righteous way of replacing that position. And based on the criteria Peter gave for being one of the twelve, Paul didn't qualify. He hadn't observed Jesus during his ministry. But there were many more than 12 who were designated as apostles in the early church. You know that, right? And Paul was certainly an apostle. Clearly, the Holy Spirit led these disciples to replace Judas before the day of Pentecost. And to do so in a way that left no doubt that God alone made the final choice. By the way, Later tradition says Matthias carried the gospel to Ethiopia. Isn't that cool? Yeah, so here's this fellow you don't know. He turns out he was one of the 70s, traveled with them the whole time. They select him, and he carries the gospel to Ethiopia. Now the sermon. That was you getting taught. The heart knower. Jesus prayed, chose 12, And one betrayed him. How do we explain this? There is only one truth that I can see that makes sense of this. I believe Judas proves that God deals with us based on who we are at the moment. Not on what he knows we'll do, at least negatively, in the future. Did you follow that? I'm going to say it again. Listen to this. This is important. I believe Judas proves... That God deals with us based on who we are at the moment, not on what he knows we'll do in the future. And the reason I said negatively is because the Bible is quite clear. Positively, he knows those who will be saved. He knows those who are his. He watches over you from 
the moment of your conception. He's been waiting for you. So in that sense, he does. But in a negative sense, he does not. He, ta- he deals with you as to who you are at the moment, not what he knows you'll do. He does not hold us responsible for things we haven't done yet. This means Judas was not hopelessly destined to betray Jesus. When Jesus invited him to be his disciple, it was a genuine invitation. But as, one, as time passed, the challenges of following Jesus soured Judas rather than refined him. It appears Judas particularly grew bitter over money. It w- he was willing to be poor for a while, so long as he still believed he would become rich as a king in the near future. But once it became apparent this wasn't going to happen, Jesus seemed determined to go to the cross. Then he took matters in his own hands. John, in his gospel, actually describes probably the moment things really begin to uh, engage with, with Judas. It was the alabaster jar. Do you remember the event? Mary, who has a sister, Martha, and a brother, Lazarus, remember this? Family lived in Bethany. What did Mary do? Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him. Mary, is a, she's, she actually listens. And she gets it. She knows he's going to die. So he comes to, to their home, and she takes what is a family heirloom. She he takes a pound of pure nard. Now, it's a very good oil, but it's got this scent from India. They have this beautiful scent. And it's in an alabaster vial. It'll be sealed. You have to break the thing to open it. It's, a, as I said, a family heirloom. I've seen estimates, probably it's $10,000 worth of value. So she takes this, snaps the neck, anoints his head, anoints his feet, weeps over his feet, and washes his feet with her tears and wipes it with her hair. She is prophesying. This is a prophetic act. It's not just, this isn't grieving. The woman has been told by the Lord, anoint him for his death. So she weeps over him and anoints him and pours out her family heirloom over him as he's being prepared. Judas, who for reasons known only to the Lord, was the one who kept the purse. He's the treasurer. So he's got the money. He watches this thing, and, and John records this, that he, that he said, why wasn't this, money, this thing sold and the money given to the poor? Meaning put into our purse here where I can pilfer from it. And John says, for he was a thief. He'd already, money was his issue. See, see, in his mind, yeah, we're walking the streets and we're, you know, the, the roads and have no place to lay our head and we're, we're doing all of this for now, but he's going to become Messiah very shortly here, man. And I'm going to get one of the thrones. I mean, who knows? Maybe I get a territory of my own. This is good. This is good. He's, he's biding his time. And then Jesus just annoys him because he keeps saying, no, no, I got to die. No, I'm going to die. And Jesus, he's going, no, you're not, you know. And then when he sees this anointing, he sees this process, and Jesus says, don't disturb her. She's anointing me for my burial. He flares, man. It's like, you idiot. You're going you're gonna to get yourself killed, aren't you? And us too with the process. And so in the, inside himself, he says, 
I'm going to starve if I follow you. How many people have grown sour when they realized that when Jesus said, come up and take up your cross and follow me, he really meant it. How many people are willing to play Christianity as long as it means blessing, blessing, blessing. But boy, when it means cross, something gets angry inside me. No, you're not going to do that to me. Once it became apparent this wasn't going to happen, and Jesus seemed determined to go to the cross, he took matters into his own hands. In other words, as a disciple, he was still free to choose. And he made bad choices. Do you follow that? Yes, God knows our hearts, and he knows the future. He knew the betrayal would happen. But please notice, he did not disqualify Judas because of a sin he hadn't committed yet. This teaches us something very important about God's personality. Because he is completely just, he does not hold the future against us. If you ever ask the question, why didn't he kill Adolf Hitler as a baby? Would have saved a lot of trouble. Why don't you take this kid out? Lots of babies die. Because little Adolf hadn't done anything wrong. Do you follow this? That baby hadn't done anything wrong. People make bad choices. People who enter into God, who are called into God's will, make bad choices. Hearts go bad. It's not God's fault. And he's a just God. And he does not look into the future and say, now I'm taking you out because you blew it. Aren't we grateful? (laughs) I'll tell you, David was grateful. I mean, King David, was he the will of God? Was he the choice of God? Oh, yeah. Did he do some awful things? I don't think Uriah Uriah the Hittite thinks a lot of David. (laughs) Took his wife and murdered him. I don't think Uriah thinks he's a great guy. The sop. Isn't that a cool title? Now, you say, where on earth did he get that word? It's King James, and I just... That's how I remember it, and I just think it's fun. The sop, it means a a piece of bread. John 13, would you turn with me there briefly? I'm going to prove this to you. See, you're going to come out of here and say, I can't believe it, the man is right. (laughs) It's really, this is important. When... I'll start at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he's in the upper room. He's just just spoken to them. And he says, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom, that's the front of his robe, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us of whom it is he is speaking. And he, that would be John, leaning back thus on the Lord's bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. That's the word sop in the King James. So when he had dipped the morsel, 
he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now let me picture for you what's going on. We are at a Passover meal. The table is about 18 inches high. It is, it is uh, a U-shaped table. You, you, sit at, you, you don't sit at the table. You recline at the table. You lean on your left elbow and you eat with your right hand. And everybody's leaned out away from it. This is the way you did it. Jesus is seated over here on the, um, what would be my right. You've got this U over my right. The first person at the end, very end of this table is John. Then Jesus. Then Judas. Peter, apparently, is on the other side of the U. Maybe at the, he's maybe at the servant's position. He's over at the end. When Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me, Peter looks across at John and he goes, ask him. So John simply leans back and he says, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says, the one for whom I dip the bread. Now, what he does, and this is, this is where you've got to get it. Jesus isn't saying, now, the guy I give a piece of bread to. Something far more profound is taking place here. This is a Passover meal, and we're at the portion of the dinner. He takes a matzah. The, the, the unleavened bread. He takes a piece of matzah and he dips it in a bowl that's right in front of him full of bitter herbs. Who knows what those bitter herbs symbolize in a Passover? The, the pain and misery of sin and bondage. He dips the, the, the morsel in the bitter herbs and he holds them to Judas. This is not some signal. This is an appeal. He is saying, do you know where this will go? Do you know the bitterness, my friend, that's ahead for you if you do this? Please don't. Watch what happens. Verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. He holds this to him, appealing for repentance, appealing, warning him prophetically. Do you know the bitterness ahead for you, my friend? Judas flares. And I don't know if you've had this experience where your anger enters you, and then suddenly it's like there was a candle but somebody poured gas on it. And there comes a spirit that's bigger than you. There's a rage, a fury that comes over you. Suddenly you're doing things you don't believe you're doing. This is not a foreign concept. Most of us, I think, would know what this is. He sits there. Jesus is saying, repent, my friend. Judas goes, no. And the thing hits him and he goes out into the night. And goes immediately to the religious police and reports their location because that's what they want. Where is he? And he reports the location. Now back to your text, the sop. Jesus offered Judas a piece of unleavened bread dipped in bitter herbs which were in a bowl in front of them as part of the Passover meal. 
They symbolize the bitterness of sin and bondage by handing Judas a piece of bread dipped in bitter herbs. Jesus was warning Judas to repent or there would be great sorrow ahead. This is Jesus' last attempt to reach Judas. Do you notice? Judas is not a foregone conclusion. Judas is not some some hideous man they stuck into the group. He's a a human who was given a genuine call to be a, a disciple and who's grown bitter over the hardness along the way. And his master, his shepherd, begged him not to just before he went into the night. Healing truths. When I seek the will of God and the person I choose turns out badly, there are only two options. One, it leads me to question my ability to hear from God. Did I miss God on this? And two, and this is the more dangerous of the two, it leads me to doubt God's love for me. If he knew this would happen, why didn't he stop me? If we have the courage to look honestly at Judas Iscariot, painful but very healing truths come to light. First, God deals with people based on where their heart is at the moment, not based on his foreknowledge of future failure. Listen, what we want from God is a crystal ball. God, show me which one is the easy one. Now, which one's going to work? He shows you his will. And his will is not always the easy path. And his will for that person. People fail God's will. God's guidance isn't a guarantee that a person he chooses won't make bad choices in the future. Good decisions can end badly. Good hearts can become bitter. Someone else's failure doesn't mean I failed to listen. What must I do? In light of these truths, I must let go of second-guessing myself. I must have missed God. Just last night alone tells me how, how raw this is. And, and, and it is my, I, I'm, this sermon's for me as well t- this weekend. But how raw this is in a lot of hearts. People have come up and said, I know I heard God. I mean, when, you know, we often go through this, did I really hear God? But... Truth be told, when you get down to an honest moment, you know you heard him. That's what's so painful. That's what's so confusing. There was confirmation. I didn't, uh, yes, hey, there's a whole other sermon we could have today, right now, on making dumb choices, okay? Getting impatient, uh, going ahead, not really listening for God. I mean, that's a whole other sermon, but this is not that sermon. Judas is not an example of that. Judas is a scientifically pure example of a man who made the right choice, followed God's will, and it turned out badly. No one's going to say Jesus missed God on that. So what happened? So some of us know we heard. That's the problem. That's, and it leaves us off balance. It leaves us afraid to follow our guidance anymore. It strips us of our confidence. It strips us of our boldness. If I blew it that bad, I don't trust myself anymore to listen to my heart. Right? This is a very real issue. 
Second, I must not blame God. People aren't robots. They can foul up God's plans. Third, I may need to grieve the fact that someone failed their assignment and pray that they will repent before it's too late. I can be strengthened, number four, by the knowledge that because I love God and have sought his will, something good will come out of this. What promise do I have for that? Romans 8.28 says what? All things work together for good to them that love God and are called. So I can make I can, I can get in a situation where some, something really goes south and really, I mean, it's wounding and betrayal and everything else, but I have this confidence. He will be with me and he will not let it win. Now, you can say, well, did Judas win with Jesus? Judas did nothing more in his evil than to do a dirty job that had to be done. It didn't have to be Judas that betrayed the Lord. But all he did then is send Jesus to the cross. How many are glad he went? You see? You, you may go through some very dark valleys. You may have awful things take place where people betray you. God didn't want that. It's not his fault. That person was given a call. That person was his will. If you've sought him out and you know it, and many times you do. They chose those things. And there's no one to blame but them. But you aren't left destitute. God's with you. Has promised he will cause it to work for good in your life. That he will make you stronger, not destroy you. That he will watch over you and be with you. And here's what you and I must choose. If this touches a nerve in you, I see it, I see it. You must, if you have fallen into that zone where you say, I will not trust my hearing anymore. I, I've made such mistakes. Now I'm, I'm talking to myself. I've made a load. I will, God, I'm going to boldly seek your will. And when I believe it's your will, I'm going to move on it quickly. Do you hear me? I am not going to be ruined by these things, these outcomes. Because once you stop listening and acting, you're, you're just neutralized. And secondly, I will not let a wall come up between you and me. You love me. Your plans for me are good. This isn't your fault. This isn't your fault, but you are here to help me now with the mess. Just interested, how many of you have had messes God stepped in and fixed and he just worked with you and blessed you and took care of you? Look at that hand. Look at that hand. Isn't he good? And isn't he faithful? Would you stand with me? Isn't the Holy Spirit faithful? Right now, who today, who today would say, I have had such an experience I have sought the will of God and then I did what I, I, I was actually, I was sure it was his will. And it turned out so badly. It turned out so badly. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm, I don't know if I can hear him anymore. I don't know if, 
And the word today, you're willing to say, I, I hear it. I hear the word. And I'm going to let that word go in like a, like a surgeon and just take that wound out of me. And I'm going to let God restore my confidence. I am a woman who hears from God. I am a man who hears from God. I will not let this doubt, this fear, this self-recrimination, it will not hold me from this moment forward. It's going away. And I'm going back to listening and moving in by faith in what God shows me. Understanding this, that, that his guidance may mean a hard path. That people may fail. That things may be painful. That this isn't an easy bed of roses. That this, is, this could be a difficult way. But I want the will of God and I know his will is good. And his heart toward me is perfect. And I, he'll never leave me and he'll never forsake me. Who needs to say, raise your hand. Just needs to say, that's me. That's me. Hold your hands up. I'm going to pray for you. Father God, see our hands. If you would lead your beloved son to offer to a man named Judas to be his disciple, it was a sincere offer. You were really inviting Judas to be one of the 12. And he failed horribly. God, if that would happen with Jesus, of course it will happen with us. So we stand before you right now saying this. We have ears that hear and eyes that see the things of God. We are men and women full of the Holy Ghost. You lead us. You are faithful to us. We can hear you and we will listen and move forward by faith on what you show us. And we, in any way, if any wall has come up between you and us, any bitter thing in our heart, God, we remove that right now. You are a good father, a loving father. Your will is perfect and right. And you are so just, we don't understand it. You are so just, so fair, so right. You treat people so fa fairly that we, we don't understand it. We wouldn't do it that way. Oh, God, forgive us for accusing you and judging you when your heart is so pure. We honor you. We trust you. We love you. And Lord, we, we thank you for your faithful care of us now that you will cause all things to work for good. No one will destroy us. No betrayal, no failure will tear us down. You are with us always to the end of the age. We bless you and love you and honor you in Jesus' powerful name. If that's your prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.